The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And now I have sorry, today's scripture. We're in Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities." Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Jordan. Well, hello uh, again. My name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, uh, I'm the pastor here uh, at Music Row. And uh, man, I, I will tell you, um, as a pastor uh, through all this, one of the things that we've really wanted to do, um, as you heard Jordan um, announce kind of services, is how do we be- how do we provide m- the most consistent worship and also shepherd well um and and uh, as we kind of are doing uh everything has changed so um yeah just i'm grateful to pastor in the midst of this and to be a part of it uh of this with you and um many of you i get to talk with and uh share life with about what's been good and what's been hard and um so if i haven't gotten to meet you i'd love to meet you uh, email me or, or grab me at some point and I'd uh, love to have a Zoom chat or coffee or whatever you'd like and, uh, and get to know you better. Uh, you know, one thing, uh, yes, this past weekend, I was really working on my house a lot. You know, those weekends, you just kind of get in a moment. And I just kind of was one thing after another, wanted to you know, check the boxes, tick them off. And uh, I started doing all sorts of things like, you know, running paint, you know, old paint cans to the, you know, uh, drop off way out, like 45 minutes away, you know, like all that stuff, all the stuff I haven't really done in a while, just sitting there. And uh, one of the things I, I wanted to get accomplished was the leaky shower. We have a shower that just keeps dripping. Uh, I had a plumber come in at one point who was di- fixing something else. He said, tell me what I should do on this. And, uh, and he was like, oh, you got to just change this part. And I'm like, oh, sweet. 
So, of course, I, you know, he said, got to turn off the water. So I turn the water off. I do the whole thing. I go in. I take off all the, the screws, the panel, the plate. And I get to this point, and I'm like, start pulling on this thing. It's just not, it is not moving. And I think, I should be able to do this. I talk to the plumber. I should be able to just do it right now. The rest of the day, I even thought to myself, the rest of the day, I was able to accomplish all this stuff. Why? I need to finish this. This is on this is one of the most annoying things to me. And I just had to resign myself. I just couldn't fix it. And of course, when I turned the water back on, uh, you know, it, it's dripping more than it did before. And I'm just thinking, man, what is wrong with me? <laughs> you know, I wanted to be able to do that. But it made me think we have this home warranty thing. And I don't know if you have those kind of things of your house or, you, you, you know, when you have somebody come out. But one of the things about the home warranty that's good, it's helpful is that it, it covers certain items. And they connect you with like a company or whatever. So you pay a certain amount a month or a year or whatever. And they contract these out. And it's really something that, that all of us are kind of a part of these contracts that, that they're common illustrations of kind of what this passage is all about. The relationship that God has with us is in some sense... This contract, it's a contract to say, I will, if you sign this, if you pay this amount, if you are giving this deposit, right, uh, I'll come and fix your plumbing, right? We enter into those, they're all over the place in our world. We don't use the word covenant, but that's what the Bible uses to talk about this relationship. But there's a little something more than that. And uh, David Brooks, who's an op-ed writer for the New York Times, has written some on this in terms of even just human relationships. He calls it... How covenants make us. This is an article he wrote some time ago. He said, people in a contract provide one another services. That is what I just explained. You know, you provide a service. You sign a contract. I just had some, you know, people come out, check for termites. And they give me the notice afterwards. I got the contract, right? But he says, the people in a covenant delight in offering gifts. Out of love of country, soldiers offer the gift of their service. Out of love of their craft, teachers offer students the gift of their attention. And Brooks' thought is that if we viewed relationships, even just on a human level, more in a covenantal way rather than a contractual way, what would it look like in the way that we care for one another? Economically, what would that do for us? More than just looking at it as a slip of paper and a signature. The Bible uses this word covenant to, to help us understand something. It's an ancient word, actually. In fact, the word uh, Old Testament, New Testament, another word for testament is covenant. And it's trying to get across that there's a relationship here. It's something more than contractual. Yes, there are, there are like terms of it. Certain things have happened. But it is really to get us to understand how does God's relationship to us really work? What is it really based on? Because if we look at this passage and others, there's a lot in this we could unpack. But what God is trying to do is give them an understanding. He's using language from ancient times to help them understand that there's a song here that sings in their hearts of ancient relationships. The relationship that's long before you had a need for anything fixed in your life, there was a relationship that God established with us, with them, that was there. 
It was him coming into their life. And he uses this relationship to say, and he even begins this way, sing, O barren one, right? This song. There's a song that's sung by them about not just something that's sung in the moment, but sung ancient of days. Because the thing that we want to ask is, okay, in this time, in this place, does God really keep his promise? Is he really in relationship with us? Is he really in, in, in relationship with his people? Or is it just kind of this contractual thing? Is it just kind of a, eh, we, you know, we come to church, it gives us something. Or is there something more meaningful, more powerful? Is Christmas something more than just the once a year kind of treadmill we get on where people drive faster, people are more stressed, people go in malls. You're trying to make ends meet. You're trying to figure out, especially this year, do we even travel? Or is there something behind that that goes far before us and far after us that holds it all together? This passage gives us um, three kind of characteristics of the way God loves us in this song that he gives. One is how he promises that he fulfills his promise. He, has, he makes promises and he keeps them. The other one is his love for his people. How does he actually love us? Does he love us? And finally, it's his peace. So his promises, his love, and his peace. All characteristics of how his relationship is to us. You know, at the beginning of this, there are, um, and you'll see them unfolded, these little hidden notes in here. And Isaiah, like a lot of prophets, are almost like counselors, relationship counselors. If you've ever been in therapy or counseling or uh, talked to anybody who has, most of what you're doing in that room is learning relationship, right? You, you go in to talk about something and you begin unpacking your life and you're learning, how do I have relationship with everybody? How do people interact with me? And the prophets were really like this. This chapter is like this. It's unpacking how is God in relationship with his people and how have his people been in relationship with him? And it wasn't really pretty because a lot of what was uncovered was really painful. And in this chapter, you see a turn. It's almost this bringing out of despair that God is eliciting to his people. It begins, seeing O one who did not bear break forth into singing and cry aloud. This particular section in this passage, the people are in exile. They're refugees in a foreign land. They've been taken. This is actually the second time they've been taken from their land. And they don't feel at home. Now, you know, it's hard for us to think about what that's like. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a number of refugees that actually live in Nashville. Nashville is a huge refugee population. Uh, I've been able to learn and know a lot that just several ministries here um, that have uh, connection to the refugee population and then just talking to them and, and also reading just accounts like some testimony to learn what is it like really to be in a refugee situation. Uh, one is totally different here. This one's, our main, it says this, listen to this testimony. Our main fear here in Thailand is arrest by the police. After our visas expire, and we want to live like free human beings, but like all refugees, we're afraid. We feel stateless. When my wife and children ask about the future, I don't know what to tell them. I feel that later we can hope to start a new life in another country, but whoever will take us. 
Another one said, I came here to escape the war between the government, soldiers, and the militias. As a Christian, I spoke out against the war, and, made, and this made me a target for the militias. And after I'd fled, I heard that my younger brother had been killed. I still don't know what happened to him. I came here with my wife, our three young children, and a nephew. I heard a bit later that my house had been burned down, and when we were interviewed many times after we arrived, we were given refugee status. But with a refugee status, it's really hard to support a family. You know, thinking about that, what, what would it be like to be just completely uprooted, not just from your home, but from what you know? Any familiarity? I, I, I know that during this period of the pandemic, so many people have asked that question or even moved back home or moved back to a familiar place because they've so needed and wanted to touch or be back in a place where they're together. Because they never, so many people said, life is short. What would it be like to up, be uprooted from all that and then be sent somewhere else where it was hostile? This is what they're experiencing. You begin to ask, and I'm sure you have, you begin to ask or have asked as you've been sitting even remote in this time, does God really, is he still in relationship? Is what he promised all those years ago still true? This language, particularly verses one through three, sing a barren one, talking about enlarge the place of your tent, verse two, let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. For you will be spread abroad, verse 3, to the right and left. This language would, would click in the mind of an Israelite because what they would hear is the language of Abraham and Sarah. They would hear the language that all the way back in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, even the beginning of the beginnings, when promises were made, these were promises that were given to the foundations, the bedrock of the people of, of their faith and ours. And they were the, the promises that they would even teach their children. They were the things that they would, they would lay out, they would talk about. But here in this exile, here in this refugee life for them, the question would be, is this real? Does this hold? Are the promises true? And God wants them to understand the promises are not contingent on the, on the circumstance. This is why he begins, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. To sing here <clears throat> is, an, is a word that means, it symbolizes, I was, I was really uh, unpacking this uh, this week, understanding what, what does it mean sing? And another word is exult, but it symbolizes entering into a blessing provided by another person's efforts. It actually means that their song, it, it's so much being overwhelmed with the promise to come that you can do nothing but sing. And the connection that God wants them to have is so perfect is what he does is he lines up song after song after song. We're looking at this one with Abraham and, and Sarah. The next one we'll look at is with Moses. And at the end, you even saw it, it's with Noah. God is trying to remind them by pulling out old songs to help them understand their current relationship with him. Uh, there's an old Dominion song that I really love right now. It's just stuck in my head. And it's called A Song for Another Time. Have you heard this song? It's a great country song. And what's interesting about this song is if you listen to it, um, maybe some of you are like, I don't listen to country. Welcome to Nashville. Uh, just want to encourage you. Uh, there are some great songs here, not just country, but other songs too. But this song is really, really well done. And what I love about it is 
is it really holds, it's a song for another time, the lyrics of it all the way through weave in songs from, you know, all past. A brown-eyed girl, uh, even Guns and Roses, like it brings in all these lyrics and song titles to express, for, for, for this song, this person in the song, to express his love for this person. He said, but that's a song for another time. What's he doing? He's drawing back all these things that they've heard, they've played. And he's saying, all this is a compilation of the relationship that you and I have. That's what God is doing. He's using song lyrics to help them remember what has happened in history rings true. If you want to know my promises, the ones you keep teaching to your children, the ones you keep speaking to one another, because that's what Christmas is. Christmas is this, and this is why I brought up it's incredible that we're singing about a baby. I want to draw out the oddity of that again. How many uh, religions and faiths sing to a baby? Why do we do that? Because Jesus' birth, his flesh, his actual coming in that birth is the guarantee, the guarantee that every single promise spoken, sung throughout history has come in this one. If you look at the narrative accounts of the gospel, you'll see that over and over, when even people encounter Jesus before his birth, b- before he's born, Mary actually comes to her, uh, her sister uh, and uh, <clears throat> and is pregnant. And the, the, her relative actually jumps, the baby in the womb jumps with joy, even encountering the unborn Jesus. When people in the temple hold him, these people of ancient days that are in the temple holding this baby, they can do nothing but cry out in praise. There's a thing called the Magnificat, which is Mary singing out. There's, there's other, the Benedicta which is uh, <clears throat> Zechariah's uh, praise of Jesus holding a baby child. What in the world causes adult people to sing in worship, to draw out from their hearts the deepest parts of them in a revelation is to hold the promise fulfilled. And we get to see that. The song is, is symbolizing that. It, it's no longer barren. This means, look, there's kind of strange language here. Why enlarge the place of the tent? Why, um, uh, even verse one, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. It's saying that those, while you're in exile, that you realize that you felt the desolation, you experienced it. There is going to come a day when the enlarging of the tent, that you cannot make the walls big enough to hold the members that would be a part of this family. And do you know who the fulfillment of that promise is? Us. We actually are a, a living testimony of the people who fit inside the walls of the tent. The ones who are overwhelming. The one who was desolate. We are a part of now the fruit of God's work because of this one who comes. 
because the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. We pack these walls and we sing these songs because the baby has been held and our hearts cannot leap high enough for joy because the promise is in him. That's where it comes from. He promises and we're the proof of it. Now, how does he love? How does he, how does he pack this in, in in his relationship to us? He, he begins to talk not just about his promises, but what are within the promise? His love for us, the vows themselves. Uh, it, one of the things that I was just talking to one of you, I see you sitting in this room, uh, actually. Uh, this week or last week about uh, doing weddings during the pandemic. I've actually been doing weddings during the pandemic, which has been uh, an amazing thing. And one of the things I've noticed that has been overwhelming to me and humbling is to sit with a, a couple who, as I'm doing their premarital, talk about <clears throat> loss after loss after loss. Be it cutting the list down, not having a venue, losing deposits altogether, uh, money, family, difficulty, uh, food. I mean, all the things that you just imagine in a normal, just, hey, we're just gonna have a huge one, or not. And one of the things that, one of you said to me that I thought was so great. He said, it's, he said we, it didn't matter whatever happens, we are gonna get married. <laughs> and you know what I love about that phrase? I loved about what, you, what was said to me was that, you know what? It's not about the wedding. It's about the marriage. And it is really easy when I sit with couples to talk about, hey, we're not prepared... Premarital counseling is not preparing you for the wedding and then send you off into the sunset. It is to prepare you to think about what is it, how do you navigate your relationship? And that's what God is doing. The most consistent illustration that God gives cover to cover in the Bible is his marriage to us. And he doesn't do this to pander us. He doesn't do that to, to patronize. This is not a, it's not to, especially if you're single or have a longing to be married. He doesn't do that to patronize. He does that to say, this is my commitment to you. Not just as an individual, but as a whole people. That cover to cover, he, said, he begins by saying, my relationship to you is this strong. And it will not stop. Notice he says this in verse 4. In um, five, actually verse five, he says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. If you notice what, what the author is doing is he's putting two massive thoughts together. Your maker and husband, your Holy One and redeemer. He's taking two incredibly large concepts and he's saying they actually go together. And for most of us, that's a really difficult thing because we think they're apart. We think, okay, he, God is either transcendent, he's either really large, and we approach him that way. We approach constantly in shame and in uh, never meeting up enough and working hard, or he's imminent, meaning he's close, he's intimate. He's so close that I don't really need to think about sin very much. But he's really both. He's saying that above and beyond what you think, he is not just the husband who loves you and is tender, but he's also the maker of the universe. He's the one who has done all this. Look, 
he's the one who's taken himself out of position of creator and placed himself in the midst of creation that he's made. To touch it, to be a part of it, to redeem it, to, to show you the love that actually is yours in and through him. I, I'm a child of a divorced family. I don't know, some of you may be, many of you may be. Uh, I'm amazed at how often um, that's the case for um, how often that I talk to people who come from divorced homes. And maybe many of you have come from a divorce uh, yourself. And, but one of the things I remember as a child growing up, especially when I started uh, getting old enough to, to date, and then I was thinking, you know, as I was pursuing Megan, my wife, and I thought, man, you know, one of the things I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be the best husband ever. <laughs> I'm going to show, I'm going to prove that all the, all the, the time of walking through my parents, all the baggage, all the stuff I have with my parents' divorce, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to beat that. I'm going to make, I'm going to be the best. I'm, there's not going to be issues. <laughs> you can see where this is going. But it's so interesting, right? Now that I'm, I'm married, been married for 21 years and thinking about my relationship with Megan and thinking, I am anything but that. Well, maybe I'm a husband, but I'm not a maker. I, maybe I, I can't pit this, like, I can't fit this, this perfection into this relationship to, to my wife. I'm not, I can't do it. And when I look at this passage, what God is saying is saying, it is not about you. It is not about you. To me, to you, we can't look at our relationship to God in that way. We can't look at Christmas and think, this is, the, this is the Christmas. Actually, what if he wants us more than ever to worship our newborn king by seeing the fact that we are so desolate, that we are so needy? In fact, the relationship that he calls upon says in verse four, fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, you will not be disgraced. There's language here from, from a book in the Old Testament called Hosea. It's another book. It's a, it's a very stark and very difficult book. And here's why. The language in that is about a, a prophet named Hosea that God says, I want you to go pick a wife. I'm gonna give you this wonderful wife. I have her actually picked out for you. Her name is Gomer. But here's the thing. She's a prostitute. And I want you to experience what it's like being married to me. And Hosea actually takes Gomer as his wife. And all through it, you see things, even the names of their children that are so difficult. And eventually, Gomer finds her way away from Hosea, leading an adulterous life. So far does it take her down this road of finding other relationships that she is actually sold into slavery. And there's a scene in chapter three of Hosea where you read this language and it's actually of an auction where Gomer would be there and being sold, her back to the crowd, 
it would be a complete disgrace and unable to see who is auctioning for her. And all of a sudden, out of the crowd, you hear a voice. She hears it. She recognizes it. And it's Hosea's voice. She's bit, he's bidding for his own life. All to buy her back. And can you imagine what she is probably thinking in that moment? Why is he here? Why would he do this? What does he want with me? And the shame and disgrace, right? As it says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded. You will not be disgraced. Why? Because the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and he calls us back. What is Christmas? Christmas is the fact that God didn't wait for us to be faithful. He he knows our hearts. This is why the marital language is all the way through it. About waywardness. He binds himself to them because he purchases them. I I love what Frederick Buechner said about this, about Jesus. That's what he said about Christmas. He said, once they've seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. If you want to know the distinction of Christianity than anything else and why we celebrate a newborn king, it's because this one put himself in position wildly pursue us because he knew we wouldn't find our way back and would purchase us with that. Why does it end with Noah? This is like the days of Noah. Because with, with love in any relationship comes in conflict, right? How do we have peace with that? Peace for when our relationship doesn't feel like it's going well. Peace for that. Noah's mentioned, and may think of that, that image of the rainbow immediately. And so it comes in mind to uh, build an arky, arky with gopher, barky, barky. Maybe you sang that before. But he made an ark of gopher bark. Right? Yes, it does rhyme. But that God, in that whole passage in Genesis, all the way back, why does he, he go to this link? Because he wants us to know. In his anger, yes, he may have turned away, but in his anger, there's going to be compassion. Steadfast love shall not depart. It means that we are always going to ask, conflict's going to come. How do we know God still loves us? That, That picture of what he's saying there and why we talk about the rainbow is not this sweet thing that's hung in a nursery or is painted in a book. It's actually the language of what's called a battle bow. And what that covenant meant, what that relationship meant, was not that God was entering into a contract with man. If you act better, then I won't destroy the earth. He was actually saying, you know what? I'm going to hang up my battle bow until I take it down again. 
When he says rainbow, you will see my battle bow in the sky as a reminder of when I hung it up and then took it down. And when did he take it down? He took it down to point it at himself, at his very own son. How do we sing, O barren one? How do we sing? It's because this promise of peace doesn't land on our shoulders. It comes through the one that brings us peace. He embodies peace. If the Holy One, the maker of the universe, says to you and to I, I'm going to bring you peace through my life. What he does is he brings it into us and to us because he took that down to point it at his very son. That's what this table actually means. This table is a picture of that. This table is telling us that there's a picture of peace, love, and a promise kept. I'm not sure if you noticed, but every time that God reminds his people of a promise, he gives them a tangible sign. Just like I have a wedding ring. This is a wedding ring that does not, doesn't mean marriage. When I take it off, I'm still married, but it's a sign of a reality. Right? It's a sign of what is true. God gave, them a, gave the rainbow. God gave a promise. God gave the Red Sea. God gave the Ten Commandments. What does he give us? The Advent gives us, the birth of Jesus gives us this table to come back to. To remind you and I that the promise is true and met in Jesus. It's met in Him. It's a tangible sign that we've broken our vows, but yet He's kept His. And every time we come to this table, it's not to come and, and say, gosh, I'm such a horrible vow keeper. It's to praise the Lord. It's to sing, O barren one. It's to be reminded we've been brought out of exile. You know, at the end of this, we're going to sing a song called Go, Go Tell It on the Mountain together. And as I've been doing, I've, I've been studying the history of a lot of these Christmas songs we sing. This one is amazing to me. Never knew it. In the late 19th century, right after the Civil War, uh, a couple of brothers, African-American brothers, who uh, Frederick and John Wesley Work, who are, actually were scholars at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, found this hymn that was sung before the Civil War ended. And what they wanted to do, they brought it back in to the fold of the African-American song choice. Because what they wanted is, he said, he said he wanted a song that would empower and embody the next generation of black Southerners to learn their relationship with God through the songs of their ancestors during slavery. To empower and equip. To sing, O barren one, in the midst of this. Let us come to this table and be reminded that we have hearts that have been sought. We have a creator and maker who has come down in flesh to meet us and that you taste the promise made sure because we know what? He came the first time. And as you will hear in a moment, as we always say, he will come again. Let's stand together.